Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Brethren, we, we've been in John chapter 11 a while, and last time we were here a few weeks ago, we were together considering the words of the first few verses of the second portion of John chapter 11, from 17 to about verse 23. Now, you remember the context. I don't really need to take you there again. Jesus has left the eastern side of the Jordan. He's now on the western side of the Jordan River. He's with his disciples. He's not far from Jerusalem. He's at the outskirts of a place or in the region of a place called Bethany. And he, as he approached that town, Martha, upon hearing that Jesus had come, she had come out of the home, left the mourners beside, left her sister Mary inside the home, and the mourning taking place over her brother Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. And she approached Jesus to speak to him. Now, last time we were here, we, we considered her words, and her words upon seeing the Lord, were a bit of a mixed bag, if you remember. That, that there was a, a mix of disappointment in her word, a mix, mix of maybe a, a hint of complaint. Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died, she says. But there's also no doubt, as we've examined already, there was faith in her words. Why? She already had confessed with her mouth that Jesus is able to heal. That her brother was deathly ill and in her mind, her faith would allow insofar as her brother was still ill and among them, even at the brink and the precipice of death, she believed that if Jesus was there, he would be able to heal Lazarus and bring him back from the dead or at least from the grips of dead before he had died. She believed that Jesus is able to heal even the most deathly of diseases and illnesses. But did she believe that Jesus has power not only to heal various diseases, but also does she believe that he has the power to raise the dead? Because that's what Jesus is trying to teach her. This is what Jesus will be trying to teach his disciples. In fact, as we move forward, this whole miracle is to display the power of God upon the Son of God who has power to bring back from the dead. And so when Jesus opens his mouth and then speaks to Martha and says, your brother will rise again, what was her response? Her response was immediately to think into the future. And she thought into the general resurrection. Uh, the Jews in these days would, would know that there would come a day, according to the Old Testament, that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, or as we would know it, the general resurrection was a day to come in the final day, in the, in the day of consummation, at the end of all things. And her mind goes immediately into that day, into the future, and then Jesus brings it back. No, no, you're not meant to place your hope squarely in what is to come, although we do derive some hope in the promises of God. But you're to place, place your hope in me and in me alone. And that's when he opens his mouth and declares those wonderful words, I am the resurrection and the life. Mother had a good theology. She had a good understanding of the resurrection. But she missed the point that Jesus was making. 
Because Jesus didn't want her to look far into the, the future. He wanted, he wanted her to see him here and now. So he brings her purview. He brings his, her attention upon himself right here and right now to place her hope in him. Because the hope of resurrection, beloved, the hope that death, that is the, the consequence of sin that has entered into the world and plunged humanity into darkness, into depravity, into spiritual death. The hope of resurrection is Christ and is Christ alone. Because those who are in Jesus Christ, for those, death will not have the last say. Nor physical death, nor spiritual death will have the last say. And the, the hope of God's people is not in an event to come in the distant future, but rather the hope of God's people is in a person, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't look forward, Martha, to a merely future event. Right now. Martha, right now. Brothers and sisters, right now. Everyone at the sound of my voice, right now. Look to Jesus Christ for your hope. Right now. Because in Him is true hope alone. The fullness of all of God's blessings, the fullness of life is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Now admittedly, the wording of our Lord may be not so clear when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha may not have understood it to, the, to, to what Jesus was trying to say. You see, the latter part of that statement, that great I am statement from the mouth of our Lord, I am the resurrection and the life. When he says, I am the life, those words ring common in our ears, don't they? We've worked our way through the gospel according to John. We're on the 11th chapter. It's no doubt that it's not a surprise to you if I said Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is the life. There is no life apart from him. Life comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It rings clear to our ears. That truth that pertains to him being the source and the substance and the fountain of life, uniquely the fountain of life. We've heard it over and again in the gospel according to John. I can take you to John chapter 5 where we're told, For as the Father has life in himself, so he, that is Christ, has granted the Son, so the Father has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Massive statement that Jesus is making. Not only is he claiming to be equal with the Father, but he's saying that he is the embodiment of, of life as well. Or I can take you to John chapter 6, where Christ says the same thing in a little bit of a different way. You remember what he says, I am the bread of life. The life-giving bread is me, Jesus says, my flesh, my blood. If you consume my flesh and drink of my blood, that you will have eternal life. Jesus made it clear, abundantly clear thus far, in his earthly ministry, that he is, that he is life. Even before we get to that well-known verse that you and I have come to memorize, that, that explicitly says, I am the way and the truth and the, and the life. Before we even get there, the truth that Jesus is the life rings true in our ears. But more on that later. But I am the resurrection that may be a little bit more difficult for some to understand. You see, because the Old Testament saint, and Martha here is an Old Testament saint, 
she, she would have certainly identified with the resurrection. But as she, her response to our Lord, that identification with the resurrection is of, a, of an event that will take place on the last day. A distant event that takes place in the consummation of all things. That's what she had in her mind. So when she hears these words, and maybe some of you now, you're probably thinking, is Jesus suggesting himself to be an event? Is that what Jesus is saying? That I am a, an event? Well, yes and no. You see, our Lord is a person. We know that he is the Son of God. He's God incarnate. He's more than an event. He's no more than an event, my apologies. He's no more an event than he is a, a piece of bread. He's no more an event as he is a, a lantern or a light bulb. He's no more an event as he would be a plank of wood on a hinge. Do you get on getting it? Yet he is, at the same time, the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven. He is, at the same time, the light of the world. And he declared from his own lips in the previous chapter that he is the door of the sheep. So how are we to understand those texts that we've been through as a congregation? We need to apply the same hermeneutics to understand what Jesus is saying here when he declares from his mouth that I am the resurrection and the life. What does he mean when he says, I am the resurrection? Well, I believe what he's saying is this. Martha, every aspect of the resurrection, every facet, everything that, that con- constructs what your understanding and far more of what the, of what the a- a resurrection is, the formal ground of the resurrection is found In me, is what he's saying. In other words, he's saying that there is no resurrection apart from me. When when you think resurrection, Martha, think of me. All you know about the resurrection, and so much more, it's every aspect is rooted, Jesus is saying, in who I am. Now, this is a very grand statement because the resurrection presupposes something. What does resurrection presuppose, beloved? Death. In order for there to be resurrection, it presupposes that one has already died. And and resurrection is the state of life after, after death. You remember these words? Sin sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin. And death spread to all men because all have sinned. Death is the product of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. Death entered into the world with with because of because of sin. And because all have sinned, death's arm has reached all of humanity. All of humanity, bar none. The final state of a sinner, beloved, is necessarily death. Death is the final state of a rebel, of a sinner, before a good and holy God. But the glory of resurrection is a reversal of that state. Resurrection is to shatter the unbreakable, otherwise, grip of death. And to bring mankind out of the realm of darkness and depravity 
and death itself and bring him into the realm of light and, and light and life. And Jesus is saying, Martha, all that, that's me. That's me. Look to no one else. That's me, Martha. I'm the resurrection and the life. All that is involved in those words and the nuances and the great theological truths that are found in Jesus being the resurrection and the life. And our mind goes to so much of the Old and the New Testament. Jesus is saying, that's all me. All of it is found in me. I'm the resurrection and the life. That's what he's saying. Now hearing it that way, you may be tempted to think... But the two are synonyms, that resurrection and life are synonyms one of the other. And after all, the resurrection we said presupposes death, and therefore the resurrection is to take someone from the state of being dead into the state of the living, and that's life, is it not? And so the resurrection and life, is that not one and the same? Is Jesus not just using words to just add a little bit of depth to what he's, he's saying? Is that what's happening here? No, I submit to you. Jesus is teaching two distinct truths when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Two distinct truths that are intrinsically connected one with the other. And from our human experience, one is contingent upon the other. And the key to understand what these two distinct truths, I believe that Jesus is teaching in this great statement that I am the resurrection and the life, comes from the words of our Lord after he utters those words. Let's hear what he says. He says here in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Beloved, that's the resurrection. 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never shall never die that's jesus saying i am the life now before we go there let's remember the context let's remember that these words that jesus has uttered these great i am statements that we sometimes just use and declare one with the other to encourage one another and we ought to do that let's remember that they were spoken not in a vacuum but they do have a they do have a context. Let's remember the context. Jesus is responding to the response of Martha, if you remember. Remember what Martha said in verse 23 and 24? Jesus had said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, so our Lord is responding to Martha and her view of the general resurrection. Okay, Martha had an understanding of the resurrection. If you remember a few weeks ago, we, we went back to the Old Testament. We brought up some of the, some of the text in the Old Testament that speak clearly to, to a future coming general resurrection. Some are implicit, some are quite explicit. You remember one of the clearest passages would be Daniel chapter 12. Clearly stated there in Daniel chapter 12 that a resurrection is to come. But beloved... Every time we see, we see a text that speaks of the resurrection, it speaks about a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection. 
And there is a case to be made that every time that word in the New Testament is spoken, the anastasis, which is the, the, the original word that, that's, that's um, interpreted uh, resurrection, there's a, there's, a, there's a case that could be made that in the 42 times it's used in the New Testament that every time it speaks to a bodily resurrection. And this is what Jesus is referring to, I believe, in the first part of his great I am statement when he says, I am the resurrection. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. Whoever believes in me, though he die, there's your death. Physical death. Bodily death. Though he die, yet shall he live. Physical death is in view here, beloved. If the Lord tarries, we will all experience physical death. We may know someone already who has died. We may have loved ones who have died. We may be into funerals and cemeteries. A somber reminder that this, this world is not eternal. It will come to an end. This age is temporal. And if the Lord tarries, every one of us at different moments in time will experience death. If the Lord tarries a hundred years, everyone in this room would have experienced death personally. But on that last day, in the finality of all things, there is a resurrection unto life. There is a resurrection from the dead. And for those who are in Christ, that's a glorified time. That's a wonderful time. That's a blessed time. A raising up bodily from the dead and a reunion of the, of the body that may have been buried for, for hundreds or maybe thousands of years and just let your minds wander not too long <laughs> for where the, the body can decay when it breaks down and where it goes and how people have died in human history and what had happened to their flesh even by, you know what I'm going to. All that will be restored and the body will be brought back and there will be a, a glorified body. There will be a resurrection, the Bible teaches us. The reunion of the soul with the body if the Lord tarries and we're not alive when he comes back. We will experience that if we're in the Lord. And that's the general resurrection. Look, looking forward to a future bodily resurrection is glorious, beloved, but not for everyone. Only for some. All will be raised, but some will be raised unto life, and others will be raised unto judgment and eternal damnation under the wrath of God. The day will come for all. Every one of us, if the Lord tarries, will experience the bodily resurrection. And the final decision is not arbitrary. It's not as though the, the fi- in the finality of all things, everyone who has been dead and buried will rise, and it's like you're going that way, and you're going that way, and you're going. It doesn't work that way, beloved. The final decision is predicated and rooted on: Have you come to trust and believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life? The final outcome is determined by whether you have faith in Jesus Christ, who is the one who is the resurrection and the life. Have we come to apprehend Him by faith and receive Him by faith and to trust in Him? Have we believed upon the person and the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ? 
Because there are those who are, there's only two categories. Those who have believed upon Christ and those who have not believed upon Christ. Those who will enjoy the resurrection unto life and the rest a resurrection unto judgment. There is no third category. The Bible speaks very clearly. Those who, those who are in the resurrection of judgment will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But the fire is never put out and the suffering never ends. Have you ever meditated upon that? Have you ever meditated upon what is the plight of those who are not found in Jesus Christ? Have you ever gone through the scripture and just flicked through the passages that speak about Gehenna or death or, or the lake of fire or the second death or the judgment of God or the wrath, the perpetual wrath of God upon unrighteousness? Oh, you can't meditate upon for long because it's a scary thing. It's terrifying, but it's a reality. And the word of God is true, and it is a reality. Only two categories, those who believe and those who do not believe. And one thing for sure, that everyone will be raised on that day. On that day, all will be raised. And the question is, where? Where will you spend eternity? The Lord Jesus Christ has already taught on this topic. And he's taught very clearly. And one of the clearest passages you'll find on the resurrection is found in John chapter 5 from verse 24 through 29. It's good for us to put our eyes on that passage. So let's open our Bibles. Let's flick back just a few, a few chapters to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. We'll begin reading from 24 through 29. verse 24 this is jesus speaking truly truly i say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life truly truly i say to you an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear will live for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, hear that, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection Judgment. Did you get the last couple of verses here from, from verse 28? Do not marvel at this, Jesus is saying. And, and, and by the way, he is speaking to, he's speaking to a, a collection there in Jerusalem. That's where he is. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming. Okay. When Jesus says an hour is coming, what is he saying? Is it past? Is it present? It's coming. So an hour is coming, future tense, it's yet to, to come. He's speaking about the final resurrection. When all who are in the tombs, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. His voice, speaking about the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself. And then 29. And they'll come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection 
of judgment. One voice. Who calls? Jesus. He's been given the authority to execute judgment. It is by his voice that the living and the dead rise. It's by his voice. Christ is the one who will bring about the final resurrection. He's the one. This day is yet to come, he's saying. It is, it is, it is future, future tense. tense. And some will rise to, to the, the joy and, and jubilation of having that reunion. Because what it is to be human is to see so the, 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 the immaterial and the, and the material part of who we are, right? Our soul, spirit, and, and, and our flesh, our body. And, 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 and although to die right now, if you're in the Lord, you're, you're present with the Lord in the twinkle of an eye. But you'll long for that day where the resurrection comes. So that you'll be reunited with your body, a resurrected body, the fullness of the redemption that God has planned for us and in Christ. But some will wake to absolute terror. Resurrection of judgment, we're told. There's two categories, remember. One is the resurrection of life and the other is the resurrection of, of judgment. What determines whether this is a day of bliss or a day of unthinkable dread under the wrath of God. Under the wrath of the Lamb of God. What determines which side you are on? Now according to the text, it tells us that, that those who have done evil and those who have done good. They're the two categories, right? Those who have done evil and those who have done good. But if we know the teachings of our Lord, we know that your actions and mine, your works and mine, are never done up here somewhere. They're rooted somewhere. They're rooted in the heart. So what you see, the manifestation of your life, is always rooted in something far more significant. And it is the heart. So those who have done evil, they do evil because of what is in the heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that makes you impure and defiles the man, but what comes out, because what comes out, comes out here, out of the heart. So those who have done good and those who have done evil, by the way, whenever you see judgment in the word of God, it's always according to works, right? Always according to works. The works will be judged, but the works aren't judged as though you do good things, you get into heaven. You do good things because those good deeds are rooted in the one who is Christ and the life of God is flowing through you because you're joined to the one who is the vine, the true vine and his life flows through you and you can produce good fruit because the life of God is flowing through you through Jesus Christ but the ones who do evil is because they are on their own they are dead in their transgressions and sins they're in darkness yet and all that they can do, they can never please God because apart from faith, can you please God? You can't please God apart from faith. Apart from faith, if it doesn't proceed from faith, the Bible tells us it is always sin. Romans chapter 14, always sin. So let's not read that passage and think somehow I can do good works and hopefully I will be one of the ones who do who, who arise in the resurrection unto life. It's not that at all. It's deeper than that. It's more profound than that. Because there is an essence, there is a root to everything you do, everything I do. Beloved brothers and sisters, when we sin, the sin is not because of the whim. It's just something that we did and we didn't mean it. We sin because it's rooted in the heart. It's rooted in the heart. Often we hear people say, and we even make the excuses, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. 
Did you? Did I? Where did it come from? Did that sin, was, was it just plucked out of the air? Or is there something deeper to it than that? Oh, there's a wild beast called the flesh in you and in me. And it needs to be tamed. And it's tamed only by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has told us already in this passage what determines those two categories. And he's told us in verse 24, if you remember. And this is when he says these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And then he goes on to say this. He, who's the he? He who believes in Jesus Christ, believes in his claims, believes in in his words, but words believes in Jesus and the one who he has sent is not only has eternal life, he does not come into judgment. But he's passed from death to life. He doesn't come into judgment, but it's passed from death to life. So what distinguishes these two categories, these two groups, is not what you do, but it's in whom you believe. This is spoken, beloved, in the past tense. It says, past from death to life. You hear what he said? He says here, he does not, that's the person who believes, come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We were speaking earlier about the future resurrection, the bodily resurrection to come. Jesus is speaking about a different resurrection. Because this one, he said, has, if you believed in me, you've already passed from death to life. That's not a bodily resurrection. That hasn't taken place yet. This is a spiritual resurrection. There's a resurrection before the resurrection, if that makes sense. I hope I'm not confusing you. The Bible doesn't call it a resurrection when we're speaking spiritually, but it has all the hallmarks, all the elements of a resurrection. Death. And then someone brought out of death into life. That's resurrection. And that's what Jesus is speaking to here. Spiritual. It's, it's a spiritual reality that now Jesus is speaking to. And he'll go on to explain that spiritual reality from verse 25 in Mark, in John chapter 5 still, brethren. John chapter 5 still. In verse 25, Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Just in case we didn't get the grammar before. Our Lord's teaching is so clear and so beautiful. He says, and is now here. So he's saying, don't miss this. You're not going to look forward for this to take place. This can take place right now. Right now. It, for some, it's already taken place. But, but for some, it can take place right now. Remember, the essence is to believe in me, Jesus is saying. Let's not miss that. And he's now here, he says. Speaking about the here and now. Not looking forward to a future date to experience this type of raising from the dead. 
And he goes on to say, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It sounds similar, right? Because in the future state, in the body of the resurrection, the dead will hear the Son, the, 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 the voice of the Son of God and they too will come to the resurrection. And Jesus uses the same terminology to say that there is a time that is coming and in fact is here. Now there's another type of resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. When you hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, the dead will hear and live. 26, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Beloved, do you hear what Jesus is saying? There is a physical resurrection, but there's a spiritual resurrection also. As I said, the Bible doesn't call it a resurrection. It speaks about raising from the dead. But it's a spiritual reality to be brought from darkness and death into light and life. And the one who brings both about is none other than Jesus Christ. Through the shout of his voice, he brings both. Those who hear his voice in the future state will rise bodily. But he says there are some who believe upon me and hear my voice even now. And they will rise unto life. They will rise from the state of death unto unto life. One day, all will be resurrected from the dead. Some to life and others to damnation. What determines the outcome? This is what determines the outcome. Have you heard the voice of the Son of God. Have you heard the voice, that sweet voice of the Good Shepherd that has called you by name? Have you heard His voice and come to follow after Him? My sheep hear my voice and they follow after me. The rude shock for some in the final state is they'll hear the voice for the very first time and they cannot but obey and come up out of the grounds to meet their creator, to meet the judge. But others, oh, others who are even sitting at the right hand, or not, sorry, he's sitting at the right, who are sitting with their Lord because to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. But that body, that body comes up in obedience to Christ and they've heard that voice before. The voice of the good shepherd speaking, come unto me. And what a savoring voice it is. We've heard the voice. And that voice is heard by believing upon him. By believing that he is the source of life, the substance of life, the very fountain of life, beloved. So even now you are made alive, it says, and never to die again. Why? Because it's not as though Jesus just gives you a life or gives you a better life or extends your life, but rather it is his own life. He unites his people, his sheep, into his own life. Think of the analogy, if you're simple-minded like me, think of the, I am the true vine and you are the branches. Everything that comes through that branch has to run through the vine. The life of Christ, the indestructible, imperishable life of Christ, that's what the sheep are connected or united to, the very life of Jesus Christ. What's Jesus 
Telling Martha, I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That we said is the bodily resurrection pointing forward to a future state. Then 26, I am the life is when he says, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That speaks of a spiritual resurrection from the dead. To be born from above. To have placed our trust, our faith and apprehended Jesus for all that he is and he claims to be. And trusted in him to be the one who is the resurrection and the life. And to be united to Christ never to die again. Oh, oh, the grammar here is so beautiful, beloved. Remember when we went into chapter 10, it's a similar grammar. Back then, Jesus was speaking about his sheep and he said, I give them eternal life. Speaking about the sheep and they will never perish. You remember the, the reasons because they're in my hand and yea, they are in the Father's hand also. No one can snatch them away. But when he says they will never perish here, what we have is a double emphatic. It's, it's, the, it's the strongest way to negate anything in this language. That is to say, you'll never, not never, you say as many nevers as you want and you'll be accurate. Never, 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 never will you perish because you're in my hand, you're in the Father's hand. Back in chapter 10, the Good Shepherd speaks and now he's saying here that everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, not never, ever, ever, ever die. You're connected to the one who's the fountain of life. His life will never be put out. And if by faith you've been connected to His life, nor will yours. Oh, beloved, does that not give you rest? Does that not give you peace in the soul? That if indeed Christ has united you to Himself through faith, that that life will never be taken away. Not speaking about death in the physical sense. Now we're speaking about spiritual sense. We were born dead, spiritually speaking, alienated from the life of God, but by faith in Jesus Christ, united, united and reconciled to the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, and never, ever to experience death again. The body, yes, maybe, but we still have hope because in the final resurrection, whether it's a year, a thousand or ten thousand, I don't know when that comes about, but we know the fact that we've been united with him spiritually, that one day that our bodies will rise and the resurrection and the final resurrection, the body of the resurrection will not be one unto judgment, but one unto life. Because we've come to believe in the one who is life. How that all works out, beloved, the necessity of our Lord to taste death Upon that cross in order to be the first among the resurrection. Although briefly taught in passages like the previous chapter when he says, no one takes it from me, but I lay, no one takes it, speaking about his own life, takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it, his life up again, speaking clearly of the resurrection. And other places where he's spoken to this resurrection, his own resurrection, the need that he needed to taste death, that's Jesus, and then rise again. It may not have been clear to the to minds and the, the hearts of the, of the sheep in this moment. It might not have been clear in the mind of, of Martha, right? It wasn't clear to her. The, the nuances of that truth. Uh, is it clear to you if I said that he is the resurrection and the life? I'm still baffled daily by understanding the, the nuances of what that means. It's incredible. But this is the beauty. Even though it might not be fully clear although in its fullness, nonetheless, the life he gives is not predicated upon a complete knowledge. 
You don't need to have a complete knowledge of the doctrines of Scripture, of theology. You don't need to pass a test. Open your Bible and let's go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You don't need to pass the test in order to experience this life. You need to simply have a childlike faith that apprehends Jesus Christ for all that He is and all that He claims to be and trust in Him. And, and he will teach you as, as life goes on, as you meditate upon his word, as you grow, as your spirit now grows your understanding or reveals truth to your heart. He will do that. He's faithful. We heard it this morning. He who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion. And we trust that he will. That's spoken to the book, to the people, to the, to the, the saints of Philip, of Philip, of Philippi. But we know that he, the concept is true to, to you and I as Christians. He will do it. But the question that needs to be asked is, Have you believed in Him? Have you apprehended Him, Jesus Christ, and the truths and His claims and the fact that He's the resurrection and the life? Have you apprehended Him by faith? He's concerned to know, and I know He's concerned to know. You know why? Because of what He says to Martha. Because after he utters that wonderful truth claim, the I am, and then explains it, I believe, in the next verse and a half, then he uses, he says these words, do you believe this? Not simply do you believe, but do you believe this? There's a specific truth that he wants Martha to believe. You see, you see, it's, it's not enough to believe in a future resurrection of the dead. She's already proclaimed that. It's, it's not enough to have a sound theology. Up here, I understand a lot of doctrines. I've got them good. I, I can answer your question. That's not enough. It's not enough to believe that Jesus can heal the sick, even the deathly sick. It's not enough to acknowledge with your mouth that the father listens to his son and gives him whatever he asks for. It's not enough. Martha, do you believe this? What, Lord? That I am the resurrection and the life. Bringing all her theological understanding of what she understands of the resurrection and the way she's placed to hope to see her brother one day. He, he will exemplify the, the, the fact that he is indeed the resurrection and life in, in a few moments when he raises her brother. But until then, Martha, do you believe? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Martha, do you believe that I am? I am the resurrection and the life. He's not pointing to an abstract doctrine out there somewhere. Don't take away the I am from him being the resurrection and the life. He's pointing Martha to himself. Do you believe me, Martha, and the words that I have spoken? Do you believe me, Martha, and the fact that I am the resurrection, I am the life? Do you believe I'm able to bring back from the dead? Do you believe, Martha, that I am able to raise the dead? That I have power not only over, over sickness and disease and the demon possessed, but I have power over death. The very thing that plunged humanity into death is sin that entered into the world. Martha, I have come. To reverse that. To bring joy and jubilation to the hearts of my sheep. Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the, and the life? Do you believe this? I love Martha's confession. Actually, it's an astounding confession. 
It's remarkable. Actually, you'd be hard-pressed to find another high and so lofty and so rich theologically speaking confession from the lips of anyone in Scripture apart from the Lord. It's an incredible confession. Yes, Lord, she says, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the one anointed by God, sent into this world. You are all that the old covenant speaks of as the one who will come and be the savior of Israel and the world. I believe that's you. The one that was promised way back in Genesis after the fall. The one who brings in salvation and the one who will crush the head of the serpent. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're God in flesh. I believe that you are God in flesh. That's a remarkable statement. Who is coming into the world. In other words, no one else is coming to save us. It's you. We've read the prophecies in the Old Covenant. Prophecy after prophecy. This time is a time of great anticipation that the Messiah would come and bring in his messianic kingdom. That he would become, he'll come because the Father would send him into the world to redeem his people coming into the world. We know that there is a Messiah coming and that's you. The hope of this world lies in you, Jesus. What an incredible confession. It reminds me of the confession of Peter when back in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples there in, uh, uh, um, Caesarea Philippi, and then he says, what do others say, or who do others say I am? And then he turns his attention to the disciples, and he says to the disciples, who do you say I am? And of course, Peter, being the spokesman, says these remarkable words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Something very similar to what Martha is saying, but Martha adds a little to it. Do you remember our Lord's reply? Our Lord replied, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father, who is in heaven, would it be a stretch to also believe that it is the Father who has revealed this to Martha? Because I can tell you, in and of herself, being dead in her trespasses and sin, She couldn't reveal this truth. Nor could Peter. I love that. I absolutely love the fact that even in your confession, brothers and sisters, and mine, if it's a true confession of faith in Jesus Christ, even in that confession, it is saturated with grace, unmerited grace that you don't deserve because he's the one who gives you the faith to believe. Where is boasting? question this evening is the same do you believe this for Martha it was about an appeal by our Lord to examine if she had come to faith upon what Jesus himself is declaring upon him the person but also what he's declaring his claims his teachings that he's the resurrection and the life So the question that we need to ask is, do we believe this? Do we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? You see, Martha only had that much. That's as far as she went. Now, we do believe in the 
the progressive revealing of Scripture in every epoch of history, whatever the Lord had given them was sufficient for that time. But she doesn't have what we have today. We read the rest of the story. She's not there yet. We know Jesus will raise up her brother from the dead. And it's going to be a glorious moment. That the, the son will be glorified. The father will be glorified. The power of God will be seen and made known that he has power. The son of God has power to raise the dead. So glorious. We, she hasn't seen it. We have. We've seen so much more as well. We've seen so much more, beloved. We have the complete picture. Because the question you should be asking and I is this. How is it even possible that sinful people, that lawbreakers who deserve death, could justly be resurrected from death to life? How is it possible, knowing what we know, that the wages of sin is death, And that God is a righteous God. His throne is founded upon righteousness and justice and sin and its penalty. It must be recompensed. And the recompense for your sin and mine and every human being who has ever existed, beloved. The recompense for our sin ought to have been to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, bearing the eternal, perpetual, never-ending wrath of God upon unrighteousness. So how is it that a God who is so just, who cannot look upon sin, who lives in unapproachable light, a God like this, how can He look upon sinners like us? You know your heart and I know mine. How can you look upon sinners like us and say, yes, I approve that I'm going to resurrect you from death to life and never lose that life again when we are so filthy in and of ourselves? How? The fullness of these things weren't made known in their completeness to the Old Testament saints. But you and I know, so we're more accountable. We have more light, so we're more accountable. So when Jesus says, do you believe this, that I am the resurrection and the life? That's the testimony and the declaration and the teaching of our Lord to Martha. But the Lord has taught your heart and mine so much more. He's taught us what is in his word. Do you believe his word in its fullness and its entirety? Do you believe not only that he is the resurrection and the life, but do you believe the word that he's spoken through his prophets and his apostles? you believe that this is the word of God? This is the word of Christ. Do you believe what he has spoken to your heart and mine? Because scripture doesn't only show us and tell us how sin entered into the world. How death entered through sin. And death to all men. Why? Because all men have sinned. Sin entered through one man, and death through sin, and death to all men, because all men have sinned. It's not only a revelation to show us our plight. It's not only a revelation to show us the filth and what we deserve. But it's also a revelation of the remedy that God has provided for those who trust in His Son. 
Oh, there's bad news for everyone who's born in this world, but there is good news in the Lord Jesus Christ because he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Definite article on both. In other words, there is no resurrection apart from him and there is no life apart from him. You want to look elsewhere, you're going to find death. Only in him is there is there life. He teaches us through his word what he has done and what the remedy is for those who are born in darkness and in death. And he says, but when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Galatians 4.4. The eternal son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who is now standing before Martha, the one who's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is eternally God. There was no point where he was made. There was no point where he began. Yes, he took upon himself human flesh. But before that, he, 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 was, he was in the bliss of heaven. He needed nothing. His life was contingent upon himself. Eternally joyful. But he had decreed in eternity past. That there would be a people, a people, a bride, sheep, that are united in him from eternity past. That that he would come into this world. That he would become man like you and I. Real body. Jesus had a real body. You cut him, he would have bled. He got tired, he ate just like, like you and I. Yet born from a virgin, not tainted by original sin. God in flesh, born under the law. Why? So that he would be subject to the law that he uttered. It's his own law. To be perfectly obedient to the law that you and I have absolutely broken on all points. To be perfectly and faultlessly obedient to the Father's will. The unique commands that the Father had given the Son. Perfect obedience in those. Because it was required that God, in fact no other man could have redeemed you and I. No one could redeem you and I. There is not a man who is guiltless. All have sinned. Remember. And death has, has gone to all. Because all have sinned. And so Christ taking upon himself humanity would be the human representative. He'd represent you, beloved. And he'd represent me. Living that perfect life in conformity to the will of God, the law of God, in perfect obedience to all that the Father had given him. And then willingly, willingly going to that cross, allowing men who are wicked and depraved to take his hands and to drag him through the streets and to pluck his beard and to put a crown of thorn on his head, to flog his back, to put him on that tree, on that cross, and nail him to that cross so he would bleed and die upon that cross. And not only bleed and die, it wasn't just a physical pain. We're speaking spiritually here also. That he had to bear the wrath of God, the righteous indignation of God upon sinful people. Bearing the wrath of God upon sinners, upon what you deserve, beloved brothers and sisters. What I deserve. And to drink that cup in its complete entirety upon that cross. In order to be your substitute in order to vicariously take your place if you have come to know him as Lord and Savior, if you have come to know him as Redeemer, to pay for your sins and mine, to by faith be forgiven of the filth and the corruption of sin upon us. But he doesn't end there. As glorious as that is, he was buried 
as dead people are. He died. He really, really died. He was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead because death could not hold him. He was accounted with our sin, but he had never sinned. He was never tainted with unrighteousness, although he bore our unrighteousness in his body. Death could not hold him. He was raised from the dead. The infinitely holy Lamb of God, the one who knew no sin, the one who was perfectly righteous in everything. He was raised from the dead because death could not hold him. He paid for your sin and mine if you trust in him. And he's the first among the resurrection, resurrected. And as the first among the resurrected, when Jesus rose from the dead, because he'd experienced death and overcame and overpowered death, death has lost its victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So now, by faith in Jesus Christ, we too have died with him. We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into his death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4. We have died, beloved, if we have come to trust in him, if we've placed our trust in him, if we've apprehended Jesus for all that he is. We have died with the resurrected Savior, the one who is life, and we are enjoying his life. United to the one who is the fountain of life itself. His life is indestructible. His life is imperishable. And if you've come to know him by faith and believed upon him and been forgiven of your sins and been given a new heart by him as he has promised, never to die again. I have been crucified with Christ, we're told. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Aren't they glorious words? The spiritual resurrection. The spiritual raising from the dead into the life of Christ. But it doesn't end there either, does it? as glorious as that is there is also a hope in the final resurrection that final bodily resurrection that takes place at the end of all things because those who have been resurrected in Christ to enjoy him even now the life of Christ the salvation of Christ the light of Christ they're promised brethren You're promised, if you are in Jesus, you are promised that one day you will enjoy also that resurrected body to be resurrected in glory. And the resurrection that we will enjoy is a resurrection unto life. The soul and your new glorified body will be united. And it's a body just like his. It says here, we know that we will tra- he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. <laughs> Think about that. Our 
lowly body to be transformed like his glorious body. You're, you're talking about Christ now. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Philippians 3.21 For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so all in Christ shall all be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.21-22 through 22. So tempted to go through that chapter, but for the sake of time we won't. So let me bring it to a close. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Beloved, I, I want to press one thing in closing to your hearts. There's nothing There's nothing that you can think of or I can think of or in this world that is of greater importance than this. Then you know without a shadow of a doubt where you'll spend eternity. That you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you indeed have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that you've come to trust in Him as the one who is the resurrection and the life. That you've come to know that indeed my sins have been cleansed, they've been covered by His propitiation, by His blood, that has appeased the wrath of God that I, that I deserve, that you have come to know that you've been united in Jesus Christ, who is the life, for there is no life apart from Him. There is no life apart from Him. Apart from Him, there's only death. This is your eternity. There are good things in this world that you commit your time to, and I do as well. Family. But if you're committing your time to your family, and they are a greater importance or significance to your heart, than Christ, you'd be a fool. And, and health. Yes, health is important. You need to be good stewards of what the Lord has given you. But if you're committing a greater significance to your health than the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're a fool. There's a lot of good things you can fill into those gaps. But I'm saying today, settle accounts with the Lord if you haven't done already. Because that day will come when the resurrection, the final resurrection, all will be raised from the dead. And the one who sees all things, does that not terrify you even now, Christian? What if you're not in the Lord and you haven't come to to believe upon Christ? That He sees everything, every nook and cranny in your heart. The sins you committed yesterday and last month. Beloved, the the sins you committed even today. Even the sins you didn't know you committed today. He'll see them. And because He's just, He needs to judge them. It's either He stands by your side and says, You belong to me. My blood has covered you. My righteousness has covered you. You're forgiven. You're set free. You've already heard my voice. You've already been called by me by name. You hear my voice and you follow after me. My life is your life. You share in my life. You are one of my own. You've been forgiven and set free. Praise be to God unto glory and bliss and eternal life. Or you stand on your own and give it a defense on your own. How is that going to end? There's hope. There's hope. There is hope. And that hope is in Christ. Let nothing else be more significant in your heart right now. 
Settle your accounts with Christ before you enter into the courtroom. Because when you enter into the courtroom, every last penny must be 